Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. To deal or not to deal? That is still the question as Iran seems to try to squeeze yet more concessions out of the Biden administration, which is obviously eager to revive the 2015 nuclear deal or JCPOA, but can only go so far in the face of strong congressional opposition to meet voracious demands out of Tehran. Playing hard to get is, of course, a common negotiating tactic, but with the game long into stoppage time, there is still growing doubt whether the Ayatollah regime in Tehran can make an ultimate decision, deal or no deal. To help us find our way through the maze, we're joined all the way from central Israel by Colonel and Reserve Miri Eisen, who is a TV7 Powers and Play panelist and Israeli public diplomacy, security and intelligence expert at ICT at Reichman University. Thank you for joining us, Colonel. Shalom. I'd like also to welcome Mr. Iran Etzion, former he- uh, deputy head of uh, the National Security Council and a panelist at Powers and Play as well. Thank you for joining us, uh, Mr. Etzion. Also joining us here at uh, our TV7 studio is our editor-at-large, host of TV7 Watchmen Talk and Powers and Play and so much more, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, uh, just earlier this week, we heard EU Foreign Policy Chief Josep Borrell who acts also, of course, as the coordinator of the nuclear talks with Iran, that he's not optimistic anymore after being the champion of optimism when it comes to uh, efforts to revive or reinvigorate uh, this uh, nuclear deal of back in uh, 2015. Uh, Do you see this as uh, one step into the grave or one step out of it at this stage? Well, it's a very grave matter, but uh, uh, egg grave is probably not the direction uh, we're heading to, we are into game theory territory. And it's not even uh, uh, certain that both sides, the Americans and the Iranians, are playing the same game. So obviously, uh, the Iranians, and uh, we are not uh, really sure uh, what is the interrelationship between the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei and uh, President Raisi and the negotiators uh, in Vienna and the um, Revolutionary Guards and the other security forces. This is all inscrutable. But apparently they are watching to see what is happening in Washington and whether President Biden um, is now on the rise and former and perhaps future President Trump uh, is down in the polls and uh, has a lot of uh, legal troubles. And the Iranians will uh, make their final decision to cut, to uh, uh, fish or cut bait, according to their reading of whether they have squeezed the last, the ultimate concessions, because they do want a deal. They want the best deal possible on their terms, but they are not going to rock the boat. They are not going to uh, uh, cut and run. That's the way it uh, looks right now. We are um, some uh, two months before the uh, midterm elections uh, in the United States. So perhaps they see the next uh, seven to uh, nine uh, weeks as the appropriate time 
to negotiate, but eventually it seems that they will cut two deals, one with the Americans and the other with the IAEA regarding their secret uh, undeclared sites. Well, time will tell whether that uh, is, of course, uh, going to take... Uh, time and TV7. Time and TV7. With that being said, this is just one school of thought. Uh, Mr. Etzion, I'd like to hear your take on this, but uh, also focus uh, into the, the logic of the matter. Obviously, it would be logical for Iran to uh, take a deal with uh, the P5 plus one in order to see significant sums of money flood into its coffers at the expense of limited um, restrictions, uh, even less uh, limiting or restricting uh, than uh, was the case back in 2015, with uh, expiration dates just around the corner. Uh, is this logic uh, truly what's playing in the minds of the Iranian leadership that is not necessarily playing in the same uh, tune, if you will, with uh, what we may determine as logical in the West? I think everything relating to this matter is not obvious, including the Iranian logic. I do believe there is logic. It's obviously not identical to Western logic. By the way, US logic is not even identical with Israeli logic, let alone with Russian logic or Chinese logic. The Iranian logic here, and I have to say there is a lot of merit to it, I think um, derives a lot from their uh, recent experience with the Americans and the way they treat agreements, and specifically the JCPOA. When they are now asking for guarantees that the Trump stunt will not reintroduce itself, either under Trump or under any other American president, they are doing something which in my Western Israeli logical judgment is absolutely logical. In their shoes, I would ask exactly the same thing. But obviously, the Biden administration is not in a position to give them such guarantees. So that's one, one logical obstacle uh, in front of Iran, and it is fully understandable. Um, the other has to do with a host of other sanctions that they have been subjected to for decades. Some of them in connection to the JCPOA, but many of them are not. And again, from their perspective, in terms of a cold calculation of pros and cons, costs and benefits, um, there is a question uh, about uh, the extent to which this deal will actually benefit them economically relative to their realistic alternatives. And here too, there are many changes because of the overall global situation after the Ukrainian war because of the recalculation on the part of Russia and China and some other actors, India and others. Uh, I think, you know, if I were in the uh, Iranian National Security Council and trying to make these calculations, I would, uh, I think I would be able to build a viable alternative to the Iranian economy facing eastwards and, uh, if you will, westwards, but northwest towards the, the, the Russians in a way which might uh, be competitive uh, compared to what the Americans and the Europeans are offering. So nothing here is obvious. The calculation is not a simple one. But in terms of the bottom line, I, I do agree with, with what I think was Amir's assessment and I think is uh, almost everybody's assessment. 
that ultimately both the Iranians and the Americans still prefer a deal. Um, the, the Iranians are indeed trying to squeeze the lemon as much as they can. Uh, the myth that the Americans are more eager to sign a deal than the Iranians, I think, is wrong. And the simple fact that so far a deal has not been signed uh, is a testament to that. The overall political situation in the U.S., as Amir pointed out, is indeed a further complication. And it's very difficult to tell. The volatility is huge, so it's very difficult to tell what will the outcome be of the midterm elections and, you know, the next presidential race and so on. So overall, uh, I think it, it is really complex from the Iranian perspective. It is also not trivial from the American perspective. And we might find ourselves once again uh, against many expectations because, uh, you know, many experts were saying a year ago, six months ago, and the Americans themselves, even publicly, now they stopped saying it, but beforehand they were saying, yeah, we have a couple more weeks, uh, a few more days, uh, a month at, the, at best or at, at, at most for things to be decided. And we see that there is an encroachment. Well, so apparently it wasn't a temporal clock. It was a technical clock after all. It's like every negotiation. Uh, as long as there is a, a, a better alternative to a negotiated settlement, a partner facing each of the parties, they will choose it. Indeed. And so far, the Iranians and the Americans uh, had still had a BATNA, and uh, we'll see to, to what extent and for how long both or any of them will still think they have one. Indeed. Well, Colonel Eisen, I'd like to hear your take on this as well. But uh, Mr. Etzion uh, uh, mentioned uh, something very important, and that is the one uh, polar versus the bipolar world. Uh, and obviously with the statements coming out of Tehran, uh, they are clearly already moving uh, based on uh, the uh, would-be council of Mr. Etzion if uh, he were to be in, in the National Security Council uh, on moving to uh, the potential uh, bolstering of an alternative, and that is uh, engaging in business with the Russians and the Chinese and uh, the Indians as a side uh, liner who plays in all ma marriages or uh, believes in polygamy in this instance. Uh, when it comes to this reality, to what degree do we see a, a, a convergence of, of interests within the strategic power competition rather than uh, the actual necessity of the West to come to terms with a reality where it cannot anymore dictate based on, on uh, a reality in which it does not employ force or is not willing at least, does not have the political will to do so. The international community has a lot of challenges, but let's take what you said, Jonathan, and break it down. The changes that we're talking about did not start not in 2022, not even when the United States left Afghanistan in 2021, and that was a watershed moment. And yet, both sides are still in these negotiations. It's funny because we're asking about why they are in them, and we haven't said why they have, haven't left them, because if they could go to that alternative world where Iran has an economy with Russia, with China, with India, why be in negotiations at all? And they choose 
to be in the negotiations. They choose not to leave that international realm, which gives them also a certain aspect of legitimacy that even though it's the Ayatollahs and even though it's Iran, they still seek and yearn an international legitimacy. The sanctions are not just because of the nuclear issue. In its own way, by getting back into the JCPOA, I think that, or whatever alternative it'll be, Iran wants to reintroduce um, itself that it is legit, it is within the world, and to try, as it always does, to make the United States look like the outliner. It's Iran that's working with the other powers, both with Russia and with China and with India. An additional point that has to do with that and kind of ties in at the end. Iran within this arena right now, we all remember, holds the oil. And I hate to be cute about it, but we are looking towards a winter where the questions of gas, energy, oil are going to be central questions. 2022 brought in Russia attacking Ukraine, a war that we have yet to see the direct energy impact on Europe, but not just Europe. So I add into that that the sanctions themselves in that sense are not just about the nuclear issue. It is in that broader sense where I want Who's going to buy that Iranian oil, even if there still are sanctions? Because that's going to be up on the table right now. In the all over in it, I'm surprised that Iran wants it. And when I say surprised, I go, why are they in it at all? What do they care? What do they need it for? So they do need the sanctions to be rise. They do need to be part of the world economy. It is very difficult, we, even with all of the ideas, to do the kind of economy that Russia and Iran are trying to invent right now. It still needs the United States within it, and it's hard to avoid that. Indeed, and of course, this winter is going to be very hard when it comes to uh, Europe's energy markets, and the Iranians have noticed this already, and we heard just this week the Iranian foreign ministry speak about this. But I'd like to raise a, a quote by uh, EU foreign policy chief, chief uh, Borrell, who, who did say that uh, the last uh, response by the Iranians to his document uh, was uh, very... Um, it diminished all hopes of reinvigorating this uh, this deal. But he says as follows, what I'm going to do is to keep consulting with all of the other JCPOA participants, and in particular the U.S., because it is a request it has to be fulfilled by the U.S. in particular, not the only one on uh, how to proceed. But I'm sorry to say that I'm less confident today than 28 hours before uh, about the convergence of the negotiation process and about the prospects of closing the deal right now. Taking into the account the grim outlook of uh, the EU foreign policy chief, uh, while the Americans are still very quiet about their position, of course, uh, not negotiating in public about anything, uh, but doing everything behind closed doors as uh, they're used to do. Um, do you see there any alternative to this deal from an American standpoint, which is obviously still very keen on maintaining its posture of focusing on China, having Europe focus on Russia, and then have its Middle East partners focus on uh, on the Islamic Republic of Iran. Well, if what you have in mind is uh, a military threat um, intended to deter or coerce the Iranians, the answer is no. President Biden doesn't have such a policy. But there is another uh, aspect here, and we are all veterans of impossible agreements uh, which 
having been achieved, looking back, uh, seem uh, uh, quite obvious and normal. Uh, for instance, uh, peace with Egypt and even before that, the uh, separation of forces right after the Yom Kippur War. Um, we know from uh, diplomatic history that uh, all hope was lost, uh, something along the lines of uh, what you quoted from Borrell. And uh, suddenly, Secretary Kissinger told Golda Meir that a miracle has happened. Uh, Sadat not only agreed to uh, the American, not the Israeli, American demands, but he wants uh, to have even more uh, openness and relations. And there are other examples. Miri mentioned oil. And oil is obviously a very important resource. But there are also virtual resources that you don't see, you can't quantify, but they are there. For instance, uh, only a few days ago, uh, we all uh, mentioned, we, we all uh, remembered the Munich massacre 50 years ago. Israel holds a virtual resource. If it criticizes the German government and indicates some link between its behavior and what happened in Europe in the 1940s, it is to the detriment of uh, Berlin. And Israel doesn't use it, but it has it in reserve. The Iranians, at least in my reading, do not want or do not believe they can succeed in having nuclear weapons. But they have a virtual resource in being able to convert their agreement not to do it against hard currency, such as sanctions being lifted. So they are dealing not with something concrete, but with their ability to say yes. And this is what they are now negotiating uh, with the Americans in order to, to get something for it. Although I see that Miri doesn't really agree with me. Miri, would you it like to briefly comment? Well, just briefly, I, I, I don't think that we're at that stage of blackmail, because that's blackmail. I do think that the United States right now, in its own way, including President Biden, Iran and the agreement are so low on the U.S. issue list that we're talking about it. But we need to remember, midterm elections are not about the Iranian deal. Um, looking into the United States right now is not about the Iranian deal. Uh, Mr. Etzion, I'd like to hear your take on this as well. But also, uh, we heard uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, roughly, the, the former national security advisor under the Trump administration, Mr. John Bolton, uh, speak about uh, uh, various angles of his objection to this deal. One of the points he also mentioned was uh, with regard to the energy question and the fact that Iranian oil could uh, lower the prices of energy on the global market, uh, that uh, the infrastructure of uh, uh, the oil uh, in Iran is actually Chinese, and this would increase uh, European reliance on uh, Chinese delivery, for that matter, uh, which then uh, would put America once again in a difficult position within the context of strategic competition. Is this something that the Biden administration is taking into account? Yes, but I don't think it's a primary consideration. Uh, you know, the Americans always have a multiplicity of files they have to deal with uh, in the Middle East and, of course, far beyond. 
you, you sit with any desk officer in the State Department and you are overwhelmed by, you know, the, the, the width and the breadth of, of the issues that he or she are dealing with at any given moment. And obviously when it goes all the way up the pyramid to the president, uh, it, it is really mind-boggling. So they, I think they're pretty good at prioritizing and compartmentalizing. And the issue at hand, uh, as Miri correctly pointed out, the issue at hand is the Iranian nuclear agreement in and of itself. Of course, it has many, many interfaces to many of the other issues. But in terms of the uh, point in time we're at, um, this is obviously something that the president need, needs to deal with. And, and the overall issue of the energy markets and the China-US rivalry and the potential ramifications of such an agreement on that bigger picture is there, but I don't think it's, it's critical. The, the one thing the US is focused on with respect to this agreement is you know, one or two final, one could argue small details, uh, one of them being, as Amir pointed out, the IAEA uh, open files, uh, and the other being this, the kind of guarantees that uh, the Iranians are demanding in order to make sure that the Trump president does not repeat itself. And to the best of my understanding, these are the two issues that are left. Um, and while they may not be minor, I don't think they're deal breakers. So I think efforts will continue to be made in order to try and seal the deal. And once it is sealed, they will start dealing with the ramifications, uh, of which there are many. Yes, some of them also have to do with what you started out with, uh, the overall Chinese-Iranian relations and specifically the oil markets and so on. But as far as the judgment call for the, for the president and for the administration, whether or not they want to sign a deal, given everything that they know so far about the costs and benefits, they have made this judgment. Um, and if indeed they're able to somehow hash out those, those two points, they will sign the deal and then deal with the consequences. But you know, if uh, Bolton's uh, rationale were to prevail, um, it would be uh, for the Iranians to say, okay, let's sign the deal now without further concessions. And then uh, they would have uh, pulled the rug from under the Americans' feet. Again, if you look at, at Bolton, who thinks that uh, it is more beneficial for the Iranians and, and less so for the Americans. Well, of course, there, it goes both ways. And uh, from my perspective, I don't understand why the Iranians would sign such a deal in the first place. But that's a different story. Uh, Colonel Eisen, I'd, I'd like to ask you earlier uh, this uh, week, obviously, uh, on Tuesday was uh, the 6th of September, uh, a date uh, of Operation Orchard. Uh, a specific strike in Syria that caught uh, uh, someone in the White House uh, uh, blindsided uh, on the one hand, something that uh, uh, we might, uh, some of us here might be familiar with uh, on the first hand notice. Um, could you give us a little bit of, of insight? Well, to what degree was it significant? Uh, back then, and to what degree was the statement by Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid on, on the 6th, uh, in which he highlighted that uh, the Americans have provided Israel with a green light to neutralize an Iranian nuclear threat once it arises? The Israeli capability to look at a nuclear threat and to destroy it 
done in 1981, done in September 2007, at the time I served in the Israeli Prime Minister's office. So there is question number one is, do you have that kind of capability to go to where the threat is, to destroy the threat in its entirety? And when we're talking about a nuclear threat, doing it, how are you impacting all of the other players? So in this case, when we've said this for so many years, the Syrian nuclear reactor under Bashar Assad, supplied by North Korea, is not the same as the Iranian endeavor. Iran has always had a leading capability in science, in physics, in nuclear, <clears throat> sorry, in nuclear capabilities, and they have built a very diverse, that's part of the challenge, a very diverse um, basis so that it makes it much more challenging to do so. What do you do as Israel? Do you make a decision on your own? Do you share the decision for with your closest ally? Do you make a statement like Prime Minister Lapid makes without before that, you know, like, can you talk on behalf of an ally, some, some like the United States, um, without a coordination before? And I, I pose these as questions, Jonathan, and not as exclamation marks. Every single time you make decisions like that, you need to see what the setting is at the time. And I don't know that right now we're in a setting where we're on our way to go and attack. If we do not arrive at an agreement, the challenges facing Israel will be, first and foremost, do we have the capability to do and what are the ramifications? And part of that is in that coordination, cooperation, collaboration with the country on earth called the United States, which is the only one that really matters for us in this case. So if I look back at Syria right now, the lessons learned are when do you or how do you coordinate with your closest ally? Because you really want to be sure that you do something hand in hand, but you have to make your own decision sometimes on how you view that type of a threat. Indeed, and of course, another question is causality. Mr. Oren, closing well, statement. The statement uh, that you uh, quoted from uh, Lapid and from the Biden administration have to do with domestic politics. Because former Prime Minister Netanyahu has been accusing Lapid and his predecessor Bennett of surrendering Israeli sovereignty and freedom of uh, decision to the Americans, both the White House and the Prime Minister's office come out and say, no, Israel is free to do what it wants, but it will, of course, have to take into consideration what the White House wants. Uh, last sentence, Mr. Tsion. Um, I think there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation about the so-called uh, Israeli capabilities or even intentions to so-called attack the Iranians. Uh, it's a misnomer for a regional war of choice of unprecedented magnitude, uh, the type of adventure that no sane Israeli prime minister would walk into with open eyes. And there's no question that uh, if to even start contemplating such a such an endeavor would need not only uh, an American so-called uh, orange light, Indeed. it would have to be a very strong and, and decisive green light. And such a light is not forthcoming, certainly not under Biden, and I doubt very much that un under any other future president. Well, time will tell, of course, and uh, uh, this is indeed a topic that we will uh, revisit. I'd like to thank uh, Colonel Eisen, Mr. Etzion, and Mr. Owen for being part of today's panel. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time.
Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.